0: Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Alongside Chris Dortch of Blue Ribbon, I'm Kevin Ingram. It is great as always to have you with us. And Chris, I'm looking at the calendar here. It says March. You know what that means?
1: Yeah, man. It's it's. I cannot believe we're in March already. But it's like Christmas, your birthday, New Year's Eve, and everything else you can think of all rolled into one. I just love it. It starts with championship week and ESPN does such a great job of of taking us inside most of those championship games. And I really love those uh, because uh, you know this. You you covered a team in Belmont. Even as good as Belmont was, for all those years you were behind the mic, they pretty much had to win their tournament, whatever conference they were in. There was one exception. I guess that was in Coach Bird's last year, right? Yeah, in
0: 2019, got the at-large. Yeah. Mm
1: But for the most part, what you're seeing is at those leagues, I I hesitate saying mid-major, I I, I don't know if that's that's a bad phrase, but uh, at that level, most of those kids, they're not going to play pro. They're there to get an education, and, and, and because they enjoy continuing to play their basketball. But what I like about it is that they lay it on the line. And to, to just get to the NCAA tournament is their national championship. So to see that unbridled joy when they, when they win uh, that's just the coolest thing. I've loved that ever since I've been following college basketball, which has been, as we said, last episode (laughs) decades now decades.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) but yeah,
1: I love this, this time of year better than any in sport and, and always will. Yeah, the the
0: desperation that goes on in those uh, conference tournaments that are outside the you know the, the power leagues where you know if you have a decent year in, in your conference you're probably going to be in the NCAA tournament, but uh, that is not the case for for those leagues like the OVC or, or some of the others where you see it's a one bid league and you you win or you go home or you you might make the NIT or you might not. But uh, and then there's you know there's a lot of pressure on the team that's really the high seed, like in the case of the OVC this year, Murray State has run the table and. I got to think they're probably in the NCAA tournament, uh, regardless of what happens in Evansville. But uh, there, there's still some pressure on them to, to go ahead and, and close the job. I mean, uh, you know, and Belmont's been in that spot in some of the years that uh, that I called the game. So, yeah, it's uh, those conference tournaments; those are nervous times because that that those three or, or so days can make or break your entire season and uh, you know how you feel about where your program's going. So, we'll see some of those bids start to go out this week. You look at the uh, the latest in, in Joe Linardi's uh, projected bracket, his Bracketology reports uh, on ESPN. Uh, the top seeds, Gonzaga, Baylor, Arizona, and Auburn, Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, and Villanova, uh, those have moved around a little bit. Uh, I, I kind of look at the Big Ten. He has them with nine. Are they really deserving of nine teams? Does Indiana get in? Uh, they lost to Rutgers uh, last night. Big East at seven, the SEC at Five or six, I mean, I got to think six are pretty solid. I I don't know about what happens with Florida. So we'll see some of those things move around as you get into more of the Power Conference tournaments next week after uh, the the Power Leagues finish up this weekend with the regular season play.
1: Yeah, you mentioned before we went on about Florida. I'm particularly interested to see what happens there. They close out at home against Kentucky, but I look at Ken Palm and he's got the probability of – Uh, that they will lose that game. And if so, they'd finish at 19 and 12, nine and nine. Now uh, Joe Lenardi will tell you that a 500 or even sub 500 record in a power conference doesn't knock you out by any means. So yeah, I'd, I'd be really curious to see what happens with Florida. They've, they've got some puzzling losses, you know, some decent wins, uh, just like a lot of schools uh, at, at the power conference level Uh, this time of year they just kind of feast on one another yeah it's unusual in the sec that i mean four teams really kind of broke away maybe a couple of weeks ago and we knew that they were probably going to win those uh top four spots and the the buy into the quarterfinals of the sec tournament but florida wasn't one of them and you know at 19 and 12 9 and 9 uh they're going to be uh they're going to have to perform in, in the league tournament for sure.
0: Yeah, you got to think uh, they'll maybe win a game or two uh, down in Tampa when the uh, SEC tournament is there next week. Uh, and you've seen those four teams break away: Auburn and Kentucky and Arkansas and Tennessee. Uh, they're all bunched right there together, and the Arkansas not or uh, Auburn's not that far ahead of everybody anymore. Uh, and it's been interesting, Chris, to see how well those teams have played at home. They have held serve on the home court, and uh, it's, it's remarkable when you add up all of those records and what do you get.
1: Yeah, the top four teams, uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, Auburn, and Tennessee, are 65-1 and one at home. And you, my friend, uh, attended the <laughs> one. I wonder if, if Arkansas knew that, whether they would brand you as a black cat When Vanderbilt took out Arkansas, uh, when was that game? And that was really before Arkansas kind of caught fire, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, we always talk about it. Sometimes it's not who you play, but when you play them. Uh, Vanderbilt played Arkansas in the very first game of SEC play. It was the first week of January. We went to Fayetteville, and uh, Vanderbilt held on for a one-point win. They had a three at the buzzer to try to win the game and missed, and and Vanderbilt won by one and that is the only loss for any of those four teams, not only in SEC play, but overall. Uh, yeah. they, they've won 65 of those 66 games, as you talked Incredible. about. It. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought uh, when Vanderbilt won that game down there in January that that would be the only home loss for any of those teams. It's crazy. And, and the thing is, Arkansas – since a rough start to the SEC, they started off 0-3, and since then they have been red hot. They they pretty much won every game in conference play, all but one, I believe, uh, since then. So they, they've they been terrific. Uh, they, they're really playing well. They, they squeaked one out against LSU last night. Uh, LSU committed a late foul that uh, made the difference in the game, and that one could have gone either way, but... Yeah, you look at those four teams, and you look at Alabama at LSU, they're pretty much locks to be in the tournament. Uh, but after that, I don't know if Florida gets in or not. I think that'll be interesting to see. Uh, they're definitely a good team, and they have some really good pieces. Colin Castleton, uh, they thought he might be lost for the season back in January, but he's come back, and he's the the force that he usually is. And One of the players that I really like, And if I was doing an all-conference team in the SEC, I might put Tyree Appleby on there. I just think that guy's a terrific player. Uh, The game really speeds up when he's in there. He's a transfer from Cleveland State. Everybody has all these transfers. Uh, He's been with them for a couple years. It wasn't like he he just arrived last year. But uh, they they have some really nice players. And they've had to work around some injuries. Anthony Derugy has been hurt. I believe it's an ankle. And uh, Jason Jatobo, another of their big guys, uh, got hit in the eye when they played at Tennessee. And he's lost for the season. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see over this next week or so if uh, Florida can do enough to get in. Now, if they beat Kentucky on Saturday, uh, we might wow. be, be might be having a different conversation about them. But I think those top six in the SEC are probably locks to make it.
1: And I think that injury situation, like you mentioned, with Florida, especially with Castleton being out, the committee takes that into consideration. Just continuing on that home court uh, advantage thing, I've heard several announcers talk about, it, and and the, the the games I've been to uh, were incredible in terms of fan support and just a, a return to normalcy for the uh-huh. most part. I, I think there was a mid mid season issue where there was a lot of COVID cancellations and and stuff, and we probably still haven't seen capacity crowds on the West Coast, and but in our neck of the woods. I mean, I've been to two Tennessee games where where it was packed. You know, twenty one thousand yeah. people. Arizona and Kentucky. So it's it's amazing how much the fans appreciate being back in on the action, and, and that's just been more of a home court advantage, I think, than any year I can remember.
0: Yeah, and I've been to uh, to all all four of those teams we talked about: uh, Auburn and Kentucky and, and Arkansas and and. Um... Tennessee, Tennessee. We, we we played at all those places and there, there are huge crowds every at all four uh to me Auburn has the best home court advantage of anybody maybe in college basketball right now it's it's a great gym the fans are just right on top of you they have students around three three-fourths of the uh, the basketball court and uh man they, they've got it going on down there and Auburn plays significantly better at home than they do on the road, too. That's pretty noticeable. Uh, But, yeah, Tennessee has a great home court advantage. Kentucky has for years. Ed Rupp, where they've always had uh, gigantic crowds in that building. And, uh, you know, Arkansas. Walton. Yeah, Bud Walton. uh, That's one of the great buildings in college basketball. And uh, they've used that to their advantage, too. And, yeah, that that place gets loud and and, and rowdy. So, yeah, that that home court advantage. And and you're right, you've seen – Uh, The crowd's come back. Uh, Most of the places we've been have have been well attended uh, throughout the SEC schedule. Got one more to go. Going to go to Ole Miss on Saturday, and that will be a new building for me. I've not been in the pavilion. I know you've been in there and looked around. Yeah, you'll like it. Davis Uh, looks like a beautiful place. I've walked around the outside of it, but uh, we'll get a chance to experience uh, that building. Ole Miss team has kind of had a rough season but uh looking forward to going yeah. down there and, and calling a game in, in their uh newish arena. They played at the old Tad Pad for a long time but uh, we'll see the pavilion firsthand on Saturday.
1: Yeah, it's a nice nice building and I, and I think it, you you talk about those four front runners or well, the top four in the SEC, if you were to add up the the best home court advantages in college basketball, I would say all four would be in the top 20 would yeah, you? Yeah, I, w-
0: I would think so. I would think so for sure. Uh, Speaking of home courts, one of the big games coming up this weekend will be Carolina at Duke, and it will be the uh, the final game of the regular season for Coach Mike Shishovsky. I've been a lot of really, really good stuff written about him. I I was reading a piece by Wright Thompson on ESPN. I have that ready to read this morning. I read that. I read the uh, SI article that was written about him, and there will be a bunch more stuff uh, as we you know get into the tournament. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of really cool stuff, but. Uh, Chris, I, I hope you don't mind. I took the liberty of uh, using some some money from our, our our Blue Ribbon Podcast account, and I bought us a couple of tickets to that game. They, they were only like twenty thousand apiece. So, uh, oh no,
1: not you, at You, all. you
0: probably no. won't really notice it. Uh, maybe yeah, we you...
1: won't notice it with our bottom line.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but that, that's gonna be that's gonna be an amazing scene, isn't it? Business uh, expense. Yeah, you business, Yeah, you write it off. You write that one on off when you, when you go see the tax man. Uh, but it's, it's going to be an amazing scene, and especially with that game and that rivalry and, and Coach K uh, facing off against Carolina for what might be the last time ever, certainly the last time in the regular season on Saturday.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's insane that, that he's going to be leaving. I, I mean, there he's been a polarizing figure, I think, not necessarily because of anything he's done, but maybe because of sustained success and fans thinking that maybe he gets a break and he baits the refs and, you know, he can be a little salty. There's no question about that, but uh, I'll tell you what, I got something in the mail the other day. That's going to be one of my prize possessions. I've, I've put, put it way up on my shelf. So my new puppy doesn't get, to it. <laughs> but uh, one of the deals, when, when uh, I approached Duke about putting coach K on the cover of blue ribbon, uh, you know, I, I said, I would send them a case of books And I said, all I ask is is if you could get coach to sign one and send it back. So last week, a UPS uh, parcel came. I'd gotten a a message that it was supposed to come like four days before it showed. And I was thinking, oh, man, what if somebody saw Duke on there and and they stole it or whatever? (laughs) But it showed up. And on the inside, uh, he wrote, Chris, thanks for all you do for our game and he underlined our twice. Huh. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate that. And he had told me, you do it better than me, but he he had said one time, Blue Ribbon's good for basketball. <laughs> but uh, I saw him at a, at a regional in Atlanta. And and, uh, and their, their staff had always bought nine copies. So I'm good with Coach K. And, and I think he's the GOAT. I really do. Yeah. I mean, John Wooden's ten national titles are kind of hard to argue with, but that was in such a different era. I think the fact that Coach K holds every other record and has won five titles in, in the you know in in the modern era, uh, I, I think that's going to stand the test of time.
0: I, I think so too. It's hard to argue that he's not the greatest of all time when you consider what he's done at Duke, certainly in a different era of college basketball. Uh, what he did with USA Basketball and the Olympics and, and making that work. Uh, one of the book excerpts I read, wrote, uh, read from uh, Ian O'Connor's book was about how he made the dynamic with some of those superstar players in the NBA work and and got them to, to, got them to play together and, and be a unit. And it, it was definitely not easy for a guy who'd coached college ball uh, throughout his career. But, yeah, you, you take all of that and roll it into one, and uh, it's going to be hard for anybody to really ever be around long enough to, to top any of that. And these guys make so much money now that who's going to want to coach yeah. for 40 years to have a chance to, to top any of that. So, yeah, it's, it's really been a remarkable career. Um, I've called a couple games that involved him uh, with Belmont. It's funny, both were one-point losses for the Bruins uh, against Remember. the Blue Devils. Uh, the first one in the NCAA tournament in 2008. Then we went to Cameron in the uh, 2011-2012 season, Open the year, and, and Duke won by one point in that game. So, uh, yeah, just – it's amazing to think about how long he's been around. I mean, I remember that 86 Final Four when he we got him there for the first time. They played Louisville in the championship game. And, you know, everybody nobody knew how to say his name correctly back then or spell it or any of that. And uh, yeah. it didn't take long before everybody uh, knew who he was and what he was about and became one of the uh, the greats of all time over several decades of coaching. Uh, and, Chris, that will uh, lead us into our guest this week. And a guy who's uh, been around the ACC pretty much his whole life, uh, Wes Durham, Longtime voice of not only ACC basketball and football. He works these days for the ACC Network. He's been at a few different schools. Been at Georgia Tech. been at Vanderbilt. Uh, long-time voice of the Atlanta Falcons. But really, really one of the good guys. Gotten to know Wes over the years. And uh, his dad was an absolute legend, Woody Durham, in, in North Carolina. So uh, looking forward to visiting with Wes Durham for a few minutes.
1: Yeah, Wes is a guy I've tried to get on the show for a long time. That cat is busy, man. He
0: is busy. So
1: uh, he... He, he literally is, is doing a show uh, just minutes before he's going to come on with us, and I I really appreciate that. But I've known him for a long time. Uh, but before he got to the big time, he was at Radford, and then Marshall, which is where I first met him, and then Vanderbilt, where I got to know him even better. And then uh, he's done some favors for me over the years, which I am grateful for. And, and I always try to – anything he needs from me, try to help him. So he's he's just – a, a good dude. And, and just like his father, he's, he's great behind that. mic. Wes, what's going on, man?
2: I'm great. Kevin. It's great to see you. It's great to see Dorch friend for years, friends for tears. Uh, as Dennis Hopper said in Hoosiers and, uh, no, it's great to be with you guys. Always fun. And, uh, Dorch knows this. I'm, uh, my dad was an original subscriber to the blue yeah. ribbon and uh, I have tried to be as loyal and trustworthy in uh, in my acquisition of the publication every year. So I'm I'm delighted to see you guys doing something like this. I know it's fun.
1: Wes, everybody knows your dad was a legend. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was at Carolina from 71 to 2011. Was there ever a time when you didn't want to follow in his footsteps?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. Let's see. Yeah, when I was 12 or 13, I really thought I was going to be something in basketball. Um, You know, I mean, I had every aspiration, like any kid who grew up in kind of in the ACC footprint. I mean, you know, Bobby Jones was one of my favorite players early who played at Carolina, later won a world championship with Philadelphia. Yeah, super player. Um, Walter Davis is my all time favorite Carolina player. It's not even close. (laughs) And yeah, so, I mean, the, when I went to basketball camps from like 9, 10, 11, I was 6 feet tall and 185 at 12. So, yeah, I thought I was going to be somebody, right? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. everybody caught up, and I realized, well, okay, wait a second here. I chat. You're not really going to be anybody at all. And, um, you know, like every one of us, I, I mean, it's funny. When we get in groups like this with other guys that do this for a living, you all find out that the reason you ultimately did this was because you loved the sport, right? You loved yeah. the sport, and you wanted to stay connected to it. And you clearly didn't have the ability. Some ceilings were higher than others. Um, and you found a way to stay connected. And I still say to this day, there is no joy like showing up at the game. I mean, the, the when you get out of the car, and, boy, did we miss that during the pandemic. I mean, oh. looking at monitors and doing games was a nightmare. But going to the game is still – when you get out of the car at a football game or a basketball game, when you first hit the door and get into the arena, when you're in the bowl, whether it's football, basketball, baseball – that's when you realize this is why you do what you do.
1: Yeah, and, and we're so fortunate. Um, Wes, I was looking at your uh, bio. Did you start your career as a disc jockey? Oh, in God. Ring?
2: Oh, man. <laughs> you know, when I went to Georgia Tech, and that's like, I want to say that the second year of 18 that I was at Georgia Tech, the student newspaper did a story on me. And Wikipedia and the internet are wonderful lines of communication in america um the guy asked me he said what was your first job when you kind of really got to do what you wanted to do and i said to be honest with you i was a disc jockey at a roller rink and i said just think about it i mean you know here i am 16 17 years old in high school and i get to go play music on a friday and saturday night at a roller rink first of all it was music which everybody you know at that age you're into everything michael jackson's uh Beat it and Thriller had come out. Van Halen had 1984 out. I mean, it was awesome. Plus, it was a high target zone. Dorch. don't lose sight of the end game, right? Yeah, no, no I, mean, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like everybody. You know, all, my best friend in high school last summer. He's got. A, he now lives at Topsail Beach because he clearly didn't go into this business. Um, and he said uh, he started telling his wife the story of me working at the at the roller rink as a disc jockey. And she started smiling. He goes, what are you smiling about? And she goes, I can understand why he want not work at the roller rink. And I said, finally, 40 <laughs> years later, my reality, my vision has come into focus with somebody who understands why I did what I did. But, yeah, that's true. My first – and I didn't work there very long, but yet it's the question everybody says, you really played records at a roller rink? Yes, I did. And it was awesome. And I had a blast. And I did cool. it uh, basically from – december 1st of my senior year in high school all the way to the month of may right before i graduated because my parents had already moved to chapel hill from i went to high school outside of raleigh at apex and uh worked at the sports world on buck jones road in Cary, north carolina for five glorious months four and a half glorious months
0: <laughs> well i, I never dj the couple skate at the uh, roller rink but i did do some overnight dj work uh, spinning the hottest hits so there you go See? that was that yeah. was 30 years ago i was thinking about that back right. in february it's crazy but
2: But here's the secret, though. When you DJ, not like a roller rink, but when you work at a radio station and then you end up doing games for a living, Kevin, Mm -hmm. you learn how to back time. Absolutely. You learn how to do formatics. You learn how commercials work. So people laugh all the time. When we used to play Thursday night football at Georgia Tech, we used to have like a two-hour pregame show. Well, there was no point in trying to take another hour from an affiliate. We're in the weeds here real quick, and I'm sorry. It's all right. But when you you steal – that hour of the pregame show like you didn't want to tell a radio affiliate hey for a 720 Thursday night kickoff we're going to start at five o'clock a radio station would lose its mind right six o'clock was bad enough so we took a two-hour radio pregame and squeezed it into an hour 20 yep and the guy who ran our property Owen Schull whose dad was the team doctor I for years yep. at Vanderbilt Buster. Mm-hmm. you know at Buster Owen Schull looked at me one time and goes how do you do this I said because I worked at a radio station when I was a kid and I learned how to back time I learned how to do formatics so I knew exactly how much time we had in a 2-hour pregame show that I had to get all I said don't worry Owen all your commercials are going to air you'll be fine and he goes I don't care as long as the commercials air I said that's what I thought so there we go but that's literally the roller skating rink DJing early playing music and learning all that if you can command that kind of knowledge it's it's one of the easiest benefits to your career as you move forward as you know mm-hmm.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you, too, the transition from lots of years calling games for teams, and you talked about all the years you were at Georgia Tech, to doing network games. To me, and I've done a little bit of that, but I would say the the good news is is there's no emotional connection, and the bad news is there's no emotional connection. How how do you look at that?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question because I just had Georgia Tech last night playing basketball at Clemson. And, you know, I've been gone from Georgia Tech now. This is my ninth year in television yeah, our ninth, My ninth year in t- TV, I will uh, – in June, it will be nine years since I left Georgia Tech. And, you know, that's two generations of players. That's mm-hmm. two cycles of four years, even in the portal and one and dones and everything else we've got going. That's still eight years of two classes, two full classes. So, really, the kids that play for Josh Pastner right now have no idea who I am or what I did and how long I did it but yet there's still some fans last night at little John Coliseum who are like, Hey, great to see you mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You're right about the emotional attachment. The interesting thing for me, and I think I've been very blessed because I came to Georgia tech in 95 and I had, you know, institutional knowledge of the ACC as Chris mm-hmm. said through my dad and, and kind of growing up in the footprint. Now um, my mom finds it really interesting that I'm friends with coaches at a lot of schools that I've gotten to know guys on a personal level and Chris, I'd relate it to kind of what you know, you've know you done nationally for years or in the Southeast for years. You develop relationships with guys at, at various levels, Kevin, and so you pull for guys to win. Right. And when it's two guys you like, you, you, you hope, is there some damn way they can tie? <laughs> I mean, because you become friends with these people. Now, I was fortunate to have really good relationships and friendships with most of the coaches I worked with at Georgia Tech. I mean, Paul Johnson and I played a ton of golf together. Chan Gailey and I played a got ton it. of golf together. Paul Hewitt and I got to know each other really, really well and still stay in touch. Same with Bobby Crimmins, who cracks me up every time he answers the phone, let alone starts talking. <laughs> yeah. um, but to me now, you know, I, I can't tell you. I mean, Chris is wearing this ETSU hat. Well, Steve Forbes has now become a friend. He's second-year coach at Wake Forest because yeah. we, he connected over the fact of how much, you know, he respected the fact that I'd grown up in it And I respect the fact of his journey to become what he's become. So you become the relationship game. Kevin is the emotional tie you would have to winning or losing with your school. And I think that changes. And and in all honesty, Chris, you can probably feel the same way here. I think that that is, you end up feeling bad for people when they lose more than you're happy for people when they win sometimes. Right. Because you know, you know how damn hard it is to win and the losses, I think they, I think the, the losses, you can process the losses. It's the continuing to win. And once you start winning, Chris, if you don't win after you win, I think it's really hard. I People, I don't think, realize at any level, fellas, how hard it is to win. The losses, I think they can process. I think it's the winning that, man, when you win, it's like a relief, right, because the losses just give you a whole different
1: dynamic. Yeah, I mean – you're so right. When I was a student at East Tennessee State, Sonny Smith was the coach there. And he's still yeah. working behind the mic at 85.
2: Yeah, and he and Andy doing the games at Auburn. They're they're awesome.
0: Oh, the yeah. Night.
1: And yeah. he, he kind of took me under his wing. I worked for the school paper. And he taught me things about the game of basketball. And one of the right. most important things he taught me was that coaches uh, get too much blame when they lose and too much credit when mm-hmm. they win. Yep. So I've always been... One to err on the side of coaches, uh, because I know it—it it ain't easy. And somebody no. could say, "Well, you know, they make three to five million dollars a year." And Not all blah, of them. Blah. But <laughs> I tell you what, uh, you know, that—that's a nice little concession, but that doesn't make it any easier to sleep at night uh,
2: when you yeah. lose. And and I'll give you guys a quick example. My son now is in this business. He's in coaching. Now, wow. he's, he's not a coach. He's a graduate assistant manager, and ironically, it's at Clemson. He's working at Clemson for Brad Brownell, and he loves basketball. It was always yeah. his favorite sport. and uh, He never played high school ball in Cobb County in Georgia. He went to Kennesaw State knowing he wanted to be a manager because he, he ultimately, at least this was the last plan I heard, <laughs> he, he really wanted to work in player personnel in an NBA team. He loved the NBA, and and actually in his senior year in high school, Kevin, he talked to a bunch of scouts. He went to like two or three games with me so he could talk to scouts at games yeah. about, you know, what was your journey? And then he heard the story of Rich Cho, who used to be the GM of the Charlotte Hornets, who got an aerospace engineering degree, I think, at University of Washington, ultimately ended up being a GM. And then he heard from Paul Hewitt the Lawrence Frank story, the student manager mm-hmm. deal, right? Well, if you're a student manager, Lawrence Frank becomes what he's the GM of the Clippers now, right? Yep. So, I mean, and you know, Dorch, your years working with Wallace, right? Yeah. I mean, he didn't yeah. play. Wallace never played. So no. it, at the end of the day, Will has gained a lot of momentum and confidence from the fact that if you're connected to the sport, you work hard, you understand it. And fortunately, you know, he was able to kind of network himself into a spot where, you know, Brad and his staff thought he would bring something to the table as one of their GAs. And he has had He said, I may be getting a master's in something else, but I'm getting a PhD in basketball working with Brad Brownell. And now, and and it's funny, my wife said this the other night. She goes, what happens if Will ever becomes a head coach and you have to do the games? I said, I won't be able to handle it. I mean, because now I'm emotionally, like I watch more Clemson now because I know he's on the staff, right? So, Kevin, to your point, I'm in. I'm back riding the bus now. I'm I'm hosting the show. I mean, I'm thinking, oh, my God. So last night, here they are playing Georgia Tech, and Dan Bonner's doing the game with me, and we've become great friends. And Dan great looks at guy. me at the under-8 timeout, and he goes, this could be a tough night for Will in the film break, right? I went, yeah, they were down 12. And they came back in one and Bonner goes, well, it's a good night for Will. We can move on. So there you go. But you're right, Kevin. It does change dynamically the way the, way the whole relationship works when you're affiliated with a team, and then you go to something like television.
1: Wes, what's it going to be like uh, Saturday? Uh, (laughs) You'll have a hand in in that historic uh, occasion. Tell us about maybe this year and how it's culminated to Saturday.
2: Well, the interesting position uh, about Mike Krzyzewski's final game is that it is Carolina. Yeah. So it adds to just – it adds another half dozen layers to what – Duke Carolina already is. And here's the pocket irony of this, too. Had Coach Smith retired and announced his retirement, his last game would have been in Cameron. Because wow. he finished in the 97 season, which yeah. is the odd year. Uh, or no, his last game, I'm sorry, would have been in Chapel Hill. It would have been at Smith Center because it would have been the odd year. The even years, Cameron, the odd years are always uh, Chapel Hill. And Coach Smith was never on that timetable. I understand exactly, and Coach K doesn't have to answer to anybody on this, but I know exactly why, for the stability of the program and where the game is today, Chris, he had to do what he had to do last summer. He just had to. I mean, we all know how college basketball works today for right or wrong. This year has been incredibly unique because you knew it was last time at Virginia, last time in Chapel Hill, last time, you know, X, Y, and Z. Oh, by the way, he's got a pretty good team, right? He's got a really good team. I think they're a contender. I don't think they should be a favorite for the national championship, but I think they can contend. It's also coming a year where the ACC, the the transitive nature of the ACC has already started. And a lot of people didn't think about this a couple of years ago when we had five coaches age 70 and older and a lot of Hall of Famers. And we still got Leonard Hamilton, Jim Beheim, Jim Laranega left but we're losing Mike Krzyzewski and Roy Williams in consecutive years. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot here. Um, but this league is, I think, got a chance to continue. The other part about it is what we just talked about. The portal, the bonus year, all that other stuff, guys, it's impacted this league like nobody figured. I mean, you had all the – in the in 18 and 19, they lost nearly 24 first or second-round draft picks in the NBA and you haven't had anywhere near that number since, okay? So that was one piece of it. The second piece becomes the portal in the COVID year. For every two that left last year, seemingly only one came in. Now, Alondis Williams from Oklahoma, Dallas Walton from uh, Colorado to Wake Forest, with Jake LaRavia from Indiana State. They've been great stories. David Collins came from South Florida. He certainly helped Clemson. Uh, Theo John from Marquette has helped Duke off the bench. So, I mean, there are guys there, Jaden Gardner from East Carolina coming to Virginia. We just haven't had enough of them, Chris. I mean, that's the, the issue. But to answer your point, Saturday night is a uh, is a special moment in Atlantic Coast Conference history, clearly a, an emotional moment at Duke because nobody's going to coach this long again in this industry. Mm-hmm. This this sport's not lending itself to anybody. You get to 20, you ought to pat. Tom Izzo ought to pat himself on the back. I mean, you're at 20-plus, congratulations. I mean, you know this, Dorches. This industry has now changed where it's more like football than bat- The legacy industry in college athletics at this level, it's not going to be the same. And so when that guy walks out the door at the end of the year, I think he's the last 40-year coach of major college basketball
0: want to ask you real quick before I let you go, Wes. Uh, as far as teams getting into the NCAA tournament, uh, we can look at the, the bracket projections and all those things, but what do you feel like is realistic?
2: I think five is the ceiling, Kevin. I've never felt six had a chance, and if they're not careful next week in Brooklyn, could be four, yeah. to be honest. Um, you know, the, the number that everybody's going to talk about next week is the number they spent all of January talking about, and that's four and 16 in non-conference games against ranked opponents, and Duke has two of them. Gonzaga and Kentucky, Uh, and that's fair, but that's been a declining number for three straight years. I mean, you got to go back to 18 to find a year where they were dominant against non-conference-ranked opponents. Uh, 19, they were really good, but 18 and 19, their last two best years, they've been declining ever since. The other thing that doesn't help the league is we're probably getting ready to set a percentage mark for the first time since 1987 of home court winning percentage in the ACC being somewhere under 57%. So there's no advantage of playing at home this year. So to me, five is the number Duke is in and Notre Dame is in right now. And if we tape this next Monday, I might be able to give you one more. But right now I would say two of the five are locks and the rest of them are kind of, I think Carolina's probably in Miami's probably in. Yeah. Wake, you know, I've, I've heard everything under the sun, but I think they're the fifth, but I think the four buys, the four double buys and, uh, and Wake Forest are who I'm most confident about going.
0: Well, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for the time. I uh, hope we can uh, have you join us again down the road. Are you kidding? Anything for Dorch, as long as he publishes
2: the book, Kevin, you have yeah. to understand, if the book doesn't come out, I've got to really do a lot of research. But Dorch puts the book out, I'm in business every year. I tell everybody it's the easiest path, it's the easiest (laughs) runway to college basketball is to buy Blue Ribbon every year. Yeah, we can't
1: have a season without it. I'm going to keep keep at it. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll have a succession plan. Okay, and and when the plan's announced, you'll let us know,
2: not anybody else, right?
0: Wes, Wes, you and I are the succession plan, so uh, just get ready.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, be well, guys. All right, see you. Thank You you so much. Thanks, buddy.
0: Always great to visit with West Durham. Uh, you can see him and hear him on the ACC Network and a uh, longtime voice of the Atlanta Falcons as well on radio. Uh, one of the terrific voices in, in all of sports broadcasting. Uh, Chris, some key games to look at this weekend. We've got some big ones coming up to finish up the regular season. Uh, heavyweight matchups in the SEC. you got Arkansas at Tennessee, Kentucky plays at Florida. Also, you'll have uh, Indiana at Purdue, Texas at Kansas, Iowa State at Baylor, North Carolina and Duke. We talked a little about that. USC at UCLA. That sounds like a uh, Passion Walton special to, to finish off of Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, Houston plays at Memphis, Michigan at Ohio State, Iowa at Illinois. So, uh, great games coming up this weekend in the final days of the regular season for 2022. The season just blows right on past like it always does
1: it does i'm looking forward to seeing a lot of those those are typical rivalry games they're scheduled for a reason and you know a a tune up before you get to conference tournaments and again most of most of those teams you talked about their postseason plans are secure but some of them are going to have to go into their conference tournaments and win their way into the big dance or settle for the nit
0: and we'll also have some of the first bids going out. The OVC is typically usually one of the first ones. Uh, can anybody beat Murray State? I, I don't know if the answer to that is yes or not. Uh, if, if it's anybody outside of Murray or Belmont or, or Moorhead State, it may be the, the biggest upset in a, a decade or two in college basketball. So uh, that will happen sure. on Saturday up in Evansville. Uh, coaching moves, Chris, there have been a few of them, uh, some that have been made and some that won't be made. Uh, Patrick Ewing will be staying around at Georgetown. There was speculation that he might be out. Uh, Matt McCall, a guy you know well from his days at Chattanooga, uh, will will be out after this season at UMass. And what about Tom Crean at Georgia with the Bulldogs uh, having only won one SEC game? Uh, Lots of speculation about his future in Athens.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if you read the pundits, uh, that's that's all but a done deal. I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. I think he's a good coach and a good guy, but you come to find out he's he's typically hard on his players, and that's just led to a revolving door in yeah. Georgia, including a couple: uh, Katie Johnson, Severe Wheeler uh, that transferred uh, in in conference. Like Wheeler transferred to Kentucky and, and makes that team so much better, and Katie Johnson. I mean. If it weren't for Katie Johnson, Auburn would, would have about six, seven losses, including last night. at yeah, Mississippi, Mississippi State. State. He yeah. just caught fire and 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 carried um, Auburn in overtime. So, yeah, all the transfers, and I think obviously their record, uh, they're going to probably lose nineteen conference games and and attendance. I, I mean. I, I've covered games down there in the past before he got there where Tennessee was playing say, and that building was, you couldn't tell what the home court advantage was. And it was similar to that the other night when Tennessee played there. So that's kind of the death knell. I think, uh, Patrick Ewing gets a, a new lease on life, even though they're working a, an 18 game losing streak and they're six and 22. Haven't won in the big East. Uh You know, he's only had one season above 500, including last year they weren't, even though they won the Big East Tournament and got in the big dance. And then Matt McCall, uh, I do know him. I might even uh, talk to an AD at Chattanooga on his behalf when he got the job. And uh, he did a great job his first season with Will Wade's players. Second season, he kind of lost control of a a good team a little bit. And uh, I don't know. He just seemed in a hurry to get out. And he, he he took the uh, UMass job, even though it wasn't it wasn't remotely familiar with any place he'd ever been or worked. And first day on the job, I, I heard a player threw a basketball at him during a, a workout, and, and I'm like, dude, man, I'm, I, I mean, some people just take these jobs because they think they're a step up, but I think it's coaching and the best ones can attest to this it's it's like a chess match you work and Rick Barnes is like this i mean i mentioned him a lot just somebody that i've gotten to know really well but he starts out at george mason wins 20 there stays just one year gets the providence job then goes to clemson then goes to texas then goes to tennessee and and i think he he would tell you that even though he loved it at Texas and was successful there, he's he's finally at age sixty-seven, a contented man. Yeah, uh, all these machinations he's made have led him uh, to a place where he can finish out his career. And who knows? I mean, Coach Beheim is seventy-seven and still going strong. He's got ten years on on Coach Barnes.
0: Yeah, and I guess Syracuse is uh, apparently put together the succession plan for for Jim Beheim, but. I don't know I don't know when they're going to put that plan into place so yeah some of the coaching yeah. moves taking place and I'm sure we'll see uh, several more as we go through the next week or so here uh, we've been uh, featuring teams that we think might be uh, ones who can wreck people's brackets. Uh, call them the bracket breakers, and you've done a great job of profiling this not on not only on this show but uh, on the on the uh, blue ribbon newsletter that comes out every week. Uh, this week's team, Chris, we'll talk about is North Texas. They have a 14 game win streak going into this week uh, in Conference USA, 22 and four overall, 15 and one in that league. Their only loss was to UAB back on January sixth. Uh, Tyler Perry is having a terrific season. Uh, They'll play at Texas, San Antonio, and UTEP to finish up the regular season this week. They're going to be off to the American Conference next year, but uh, doing some damage in Conference USA and may do the same in the NCAA tournament this month.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't even know. People might say, uh, duh, when we mention this because they took out Purdue last year. But Grant McCaslin... I mean, he's from Texas, and maybe that's that's the job where he wants to spend the rest of his career. I don't know. But he reminds me an awful lot of Chris Beard, uh, a guy who's done it at every level, uh, been a quick fixer-upper and been able to turn programs around, and done it with transfers and stuff. Tyler Perry, is a, as you mentioned, is a junior college transfer, and he, he's got a lot of Juco guys. I really like this team. Uh, They're the leading uh, scoring defense team in the nation. They're only giving up 55.3 points per game. And they've also, this is huge. They've surrendered the fewest threes per game, only 4.1. And Mm. I think if you can do that, uh, you can keep teams from either running away from you or coming back on you. The only thing I don't like, oh, here's another cool thing. This team has six left-handers on its roster. uh, and, And, I've heard – I don't know if you've heard this, but people have told me that uh, it's obviously right-hand dominant world and game. But if you got a bunch of lefties, it can give you a little bit of an advantage because it gives the left-handed shooter against a right-handed defender just another little second to squeeze off a shot. So, I don't know. Take that for what you want. I don't think I'd fill out a bracket based on that. (laughs) Uh, The one thing that worries me about the Mean Green – um, they are a crummy free throw shooting team. Uh, they're 300th of 358 uh, at, at 67%. Uh, I guess that's not crummy, but it's not great. Three of their starters, though, are under 60% from the free throw line. So close games might not be good. If they can keep it uh, f- from being close toward the end, I-, I think they can win a game or two. They, they really guard you.
0: They should match up Tennessee and North Texas in, like, a 4-13 game because Tennessee always has lots of left-handed guys, too. They don't have as many this yeah, year they as, they, as they used to. I think they had, like, six or seven on the roster last season, if I remember correctly. They've I
1: got know. three. Uh, I, I know uh, Josiah James is lefty. Uh, Vescovy is lefty. John Fulkerson is lefty. They may have a couple more still. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where I heard that. I, I don't know it, – it, I guess it kind of stands to reason, you know, if you're shooting from the port side and a right hander's trying to get to your, your shot, maybe you got an extra little second to squeeze yeah. it off. I don't know. It sounds good.
0: Yeah, it sounds good. It's a great theory anyway. So uh, yeah. we'll keep an eye on North Texas and we'll bring you some more bracket breakers as we uh, move through March here. Speaking of great shooters, one interesting thing I saw the other night, I was uh, calling Vanderbilt, Florida on Tuesday night at Memorial gym and, and, Florida's color analyst with with uh, Mick Hubert, who's the legendary voice of the Gators, yeah. is, is Lee Humphrey who played on their back-to-back championship teams uh, about, yeah. about fifteen years ago in oh six and oh seven. And apparently it's a pregame ritual that he gets out and, and puts up some jumpers before the game. So we're sitting there watching him and Lee Humphrey can still shoot the rock. I mean, yeah. it's it's a few years after he's played, but I mean he gets out there, he must have knocked down at one point about ten or twelve three pointers in a row and apparently he does this on the road, and the student sections uh, get a, get a kick out of it, watching him do it. And some are, some of them were like, "Why doesn't this guy play on the team?" And not really <laughs> knowing what the history is. Uh, I was talking to to uh, to Florida's guys about that. It was really entertaining to watch, and and it, it made me think about those great Florida teams that won back to back championships. I mean, they're they're the only team since Duke in '91 and '92 to win back to back in the tournament, which is Gosh, that's just almost impossible to do to I have win, a story to win those that. six games two years in a row.
1: I have a story about that. Okay. Um he's from Maryville High School, uh, which is outside of Knoxville, as you know. Uh-huh. And um the then Tennessee coach, Buzz Peterson, for whatever reason, did not recruit him, even though he wanted to go there. Uh his, his blood was orange. And so he ends up going to Florida. And that decision altered the course of college basketball history because Lee Humphrey is the NCAA tournament career record leader in three point goals. So, and, and even though they had guys that were drafted uh, into the NBA, he was a key cog in those back-to-back championships. So, not only did he diminish his own team by not taking Lee Humphrey, <laughs> uh, but he, he, he really gave, uh, I think, Florida the key ingredient, or well, a key ingredient to winning back-to-back. I don't think they'd do it without Lee Humphrey. So, you know, uh, it's funny, the, the repercussions that recruiting decisions make, uh, I've, I've, I could write a book on those, actually. I, so many coaches have told me so many stories about kids that got away. That's a Lee Humphrey story. He, he
0: was out there in his Florida orange polo knocking down jumpers at Memorial Gym on Tuesday night. He probably still looks like he's um, young enough to play. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and if you do your book about college recruiting, uh, I want to see at least one chapter on, on a young man named Steph Curry because I think oh, yeah. that that's one of the most amazing recruiting – I don't know if you want to say misses, but – Pretty much anybody high major could have probably had that guy. He ends up at Davidson. Now he's the greatest shooter in the history of basketball. Kevin, so. <laughs> I, I,
1: I have, I have Steph's stories, too. He was there, Davidson was in the so- SOCON uh, when he was there. And I got to see him quite a bit because I live in Chattanooga. And the first time I saw that kid, literally the first time, and I'm not saying that like I should be coaching or anything, but you could tell he was special. And it had nothing to do with his jump shot. This kid kept his head up and was always thinking ahead. He was always looking at the next play, always passing the ball ahead. You know, Davidson likes to to, to run the break. And if you didn't watch out, if you were a Davidson teammate, the ball was going to bounce off your head. And then he started shooting the ball. It was pure as the driven snow. And I'm like, who in the heck, even his father, Del Curry's alma mater, Virginia Tech, wanted him to go to a prep school. It's like, I, I just couldn't believe it. But by the time he was done there, his junior year, and everybody knew he was going to go pro, they play in Chattanooga, 9,000 people showed up for that game. They haven't had 9,000 people since. <laughs> Uh that that was their that's been their biggest crowd in probably two decades just to get a glimpse of Steph Curry because everybody knew worry he was headed I don't think anybody knew he'd be as great as he was but I think you could say he's, he could be the goat of shooters and everybody missed on him but Davidson
0: Yeah I I think at this point and I've thought about this a lot. I try not to have recency bias and and, and like go over the top and saying somebody is the greatest at something. But having watched a lot of basketball for a long time, he's got to be the greatest shooter. I, you just watch. I mean, he not only is a great shooter, he revolutionized basketball in a lot of ways. Uh, you never saw kids out there shooting 30-footers until he came along, and now you see it all the time. So, uh, yeah, just one of the all-time greats in, uh, from Davidson to, to being an NBA Hall of Famer, and he's just uh, been a remarkable story in college basketball and, and pro basketball certainly uh, since his days when he almost took Davidson to the Final Four.
1: One shot away, right?
0: Yeah, they are one Punch. shot away against Kansas, right? Uh, he took that game that, in Houston. Right, and
1: missed it? Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Uh, so crazy. It really it, is. It would
1: have been great for him to get in the Final Four.
0: Chris, always a lot of fun looking forward to what's ahead in March, and we'll do it again next time, man. Sounds good, buddy. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram, and that is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.